among Jews, the idea of the Messiah as a kind of divine human was not at all uncommon. Therefore, the shock of the early Jesus movement was not on the theological front, whether there could be possibly a father and a son, but whether Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the one that they were all expecting. And I suggest that actually what we call today high Christology was there from the very beginning. On this edition of the White Horse Inn, we'll be hearing from Daniel Boyarin, author of The Jewish Gospels, and also John Ronning, author of The Jewish Targums in John's Logos Theology. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hey there, and welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal, your host throughout this year as we're making our way through the Gospel of John. And on this episode, we'll be exploring the Jewishness of the fourth gospel, as we hear from two guests who've written a great deal on this subject. In the first half of the program, I'll be talking with Berkeley professor Daniel Boyarin, and then after the break, we'll hear from a scholar by the name of John Ronning. Daniel Boyarin is on the line with me now. He's a Talmud scholar who's authored numerous books and essays on the intersection of Christianity and Judaism. And for the purposes of this program, we'll be talking with him about a book he wrote back in 2012 titled The Jewish Gospels, The Story of the Jewish Christ. Daniel Boyarin, thanks for being my guest today on the White Horse Inn. It's my pleasure. So right at the opening of your book, you tell your readers that there was a time when Jews and Christians were much more mixed up with each other than they are now. And there were many Jews who believed something quite like the Father and the Son, and even something quite like the incarnation of the Son in the Messiah. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. The argument is fairly straightforward, based on a significant number of Jewish texts from the first century and a little bit earlier, I tried to show that among Jews, the idea of the Messiah as a kind of divine human was not at all uncommon. Therefore, the very idea of the Messiah as a divine figure that somehow comes to earth in the form of a human being um, fits these Jewish patterns very well. So the shock or the, the claim of the early Jesus movement was not on the theological front, whether there could be possibly a father and a son. Uh, I think that was quite acceptable to many, if not most Jews, or even whether there could be a divine human combination, as it were. But the argument was whether Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the one that they were all expecting. You know, a lot of times Christian friends ask me, why didn't the Jews believe in Jesus Christ? I said, well, who do you think did believe in him? The Chinese, the Navajo? Obviously, the people who accepted him were Jews. And why didn't all the Jews accept him or believe him? Well, if you know Jews, you know, it's impossible to imagine all the Jews agreeing on anything at any time. So I think that this perspective restores the early Jesus movement to its deep and most important context within the Jewish world. Yeah, you write that uh, many Israelites at the time of Jesus 
were expecting a Messiah who would be divine and come to the earth in human form, and thus the basic underlying thoughts from which both the Trinity and the Incarnation grew are there in the very world into which Jesus was born and into which he was first written about in the Gospels of Mark and John. I want to pick your brain about that last line, first written in Mark and John, because most people argue that Mark is the earliest gospel and that John is the latest, and therefore it's the most idealized, the most theological, perhaps even the most Greek. It seems like you don't agree with that way of thinking about the fourth gospel. I certainly don't. You're right. I am not impressed with arguments that make John Greek or Platonic or philosophical or anything of that sort. I don't know chronologically exactly how it fits in with the synoptics. But what I'm convinced of is that it is not based on the synoptics. So in that sense, it is an original tradition. John is itself an independent foundational text. So that's why I talk about Mark and John as being both foundational. You wrote an essay that was published in the Jewish Annotated New Testament titled Logos, a Jewish Word. John's prologue is Midrash. And by Logos there, of course, you're referring to the opening words of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and that word in Greek is Logos. And mysteriously, that word of God is somehow also God there in the opening prologue. And so many people have argued that the author of this text is borrowing concepts from Platonic philosophy, perhaps as an apologetic to a Greek audience. But you argue, no, that that word is a Jewish concept. Can you go into that a little? Yeah. There's close connection between the Greek word logos and the Aramaic word memra, which means speech or word, and which is predicated of God within Jewish Aramaic translations of the Torah of the Bible itself. Secondly, I try to show that the best way to understand the prologue to John is as a midrash, as an actual interpretation of the first verses of Genesis. I suggest that it can be retroverted back into Hebrew or Aramaic, and it will make perfectly good sense as part of that Jewish world. What's your explanation as to how this concept of the word, which, as you say in Aramaic, is the memra, why do you think that began to be applied to God? Do you think, for example, that it's possible to see this as an ancient Jewish way of explaining texts such as you find in Exodus 3, where you have this mysterious character known as the angel of the Lord or the messenger of Yahweh, who also speaks and acts as Yahweh? Yeah, I think that's a very, very significant piece of where the tradition comes from. As far back as we can go in what you call the Old Testament and I call the Bible, we find this slippage between the named God and an angel within the same narrative, sometimes called the angel of the Lord and sometimes called the Lord. So it does seem to be part of very, very ancient tradition. So do you believe that this is why we find in Aramaic translations of the Torah various places in which this concept of the word appears even as a kind of second divine figure? For example, there's a place in which Yahweh himself says, um, my word will be for you a redeeming God. Yeah, yeah, that, that and, and, you know, and uh, other streams go into that tradition also. Generally, the idea of the word as that which affects creation, right? Uh, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So it is the saying 
the word that God says that produces the light. But would you agree that in many of those Aramaic translations, the word or memra isn't simply being presented as divine speech, but often it's the word himself who's doing the speaking? <laughs> well, the divine speech becomes, becomes hypostasized. Can you explain what that means for our listeners? It comes to be understood as a divine figure in its own right. Let me ask you this question. So you end up concluding that we can no longer think of Jesus as some kind of ethical religious teacher who was later promoted to divinity under the influence of alien Greek notions with his so-called original message being distorted and lost. The idea of Jesus as a divine human messiah goes back to the very beginning of the Christian movement, to Jesus himself, and even before that. Can you go into that a little more? Well, there's been a certain kind of so-called liberal Protestant theology that has wanted since the 19th century to reconstruct the very kind of rationalistic image of who Jesus was, right? Itinerant preacher, provocative teacher. That liberal tradition insists that Jesus was a great teacher, perhaps even a prophet, but argues that the accretion of divinity and second personhood and incarnation, etc., is under the impact of Greek ideas later than the, the first century at any rate. And I suggest that actually what we call today high Christology, namely the notion of Jesus as divine human, was there from the very beginning. And it was there from the very beginning precisely because it answered to a major uh, spiritual tendency within the Jewish spirituality of the day. You talk in your book about the fact that modern Bible readers tend to think of the phrase Son of God as a reference to Christ's divinity, whereas Son of Man points to his humanity. But you say that almost the exact opposite was the case. Can you explain that point for our listeners? Yes. Let's start with Son of God. We see very clearly in the Psalms and uh, some of the prophetic texts that the King of Israel was called the Son of God, right? Uh, there are many examples. Now, the Messiah as Son of God means the the restoration of the once and future true kingship, right? So when when the Messiah is referred to as Son of God, that indicates that he is the true King of Israel. Son of Man, on the other hand, many if not most scholars agree, comes from Daniel seven, where Daniel sees a vision. And in his vision, he sees two clearly divine figures, one Atik Yomin, that is one ancient of days, and another one like unto a son of man. Now, son of man in Aramaic there just means a human being. That's true. But when he see a divine figure like unto a son of man, that means his appearance is as a young human. But he's clearly a divine figure there. Because he comes riding on the clouds. And his kingdom is eternal. And his kingdom is eternal, right? So therefore, I argue paradoxically that Son of God refers to the human aspect, the king, because even the, even the ordinary historical kings of Israel were called Son of God. And to summarize your view of Daniel 7, you say this Son of Man character there in Daniel 7 is divine, but he's in human form. He may very well be portrayed as a younger appearing divinity than the Ancient of Days. He will be enthroned on high. He's given power and dominion 
So then you write that the Messiah Christ existed as a Jewish idea long before the baby Jesus was born. This idea of a second God as viceroy to God the Father is one of the oldest theological ideas in Israel. Exactly. That doesn't seem to be the common way most people think about these issues. Are you alone in this perspective, or are there other scholars out there putting forward similar ideas? Well, I don't know exactly who's putting it forward, but there are certainly people who have accepted the argument that I made there. But it's not such a wild idea. Do you think that there is a new appreciation for the Jewishness of both Jesus and the New Testament as a whole in modern New Testament scholarship? Absolutely. Not universal, of course. I mean, we still get some pretty sharply anti-Judaic formulations from some very prominent New Testament scholars whose names I will not mention. You know, there even developed a principle among New Testament scholars that when looking through the Gospels and trying to figure out what are the genuine words of Jesus, anything that is dissimilar to what they consider to be the Judaism of the day, that's what is the genuine words of Jesus. Yeah. And somehow they discovered that all of Jesus' words were dissimilar to Judaism, frequently to just what they were imagining Judaism to be. But there's a strong movement within New Testament scholarship to pay close attention to the deep Jewishness of the Gospels and of Paul as well. You talk about the famous suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53, and you interact with a common Jewish interpretation that says it refers allegorically to the suffering of Israel herself. But you say that there's also another way to look at that passage. Right. And that it doesn't divide along Christian versus Jewish lines, right? That there are ancient and even medieval Jews who also saw that as reference to the suffering Messiah. It's not Jews on one side, Christians on the other side. You know, in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are some allusions to this passage here from Isaiah 53. One text in particular refers to a king that will sit on David's throne who says, quote, There is none comparable to me in my glory. No one besides me shall be exalted, for I have dwelt on high in the heavens. I am reckoned with the divine beings, and my abode is in the holy congregation. But then this same text goes on to say, Who is considered as contemptible as I am, and who has been despised like me? Who has been rejected by men like me? Who has borne troubles like me? Clear references, I think, there to both Isaiah 52 and 53. So you have like a divine figure who's also being rejected and bearing human troubles. Right. So, And that seems to be you know, a pre-Christian Jewish idea there in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Exactly. That's exactly my point, that it's, it's sometimes taken as if this is an absolute marker of the difference between Jews and Christians, and it just isn't. So you conclude your book by saying that the very moments that we take to be the most characteristically Christian, as opposed to Jewish, the notion of a dual Godhead with a father and a son, the notion of a Redeemer who himself will be both God and man, or the notion that this Redeemer would suffer and die as a part of the salvation process, at least some of these ideas, you say, have deep roots in the Hebrew Bible. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes when I want to be a little provocative, I refer to the text of the New Testament as evidence for a very conservative version of Judaic belief that was somehow changed during the rabbinic period by the rabbis. 
Well, I've been talking with Berkeley professor Daniel Boyarin about his book, The Jewish Gospels. Professor Boyarin, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll be hearing from John Ronning, author of The Jewish Targums in John's Logos Theology. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm from Savannah, Georgia. I started listening to the show in 2007, and what I like about it is just the wisdom and the easy conversation that I get from the show, and I I listen to the broadcast over and over and just learn more and more each time I listen. So thank you, and I'm a partner, and I want to see Modern Reformation in my neighborhood. Stay in touch with the White Horse Inn between episodes by signing up to receive our e-newsletter. When you sign up, you'll get the opportunity to have the latest podcasts delivered to your inbox each week, along with news and information about upcoming events and mission updates. And if you sign up now, we'll send you a free article titled Grace and Regeneration, an overview of the Gospel of John. To get this free article along with our e-newsletter, simply head to whitehorseinn.org slash john. That's whitehorseinn.org forward slash john. Welcome back to the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and on this program, we're talking about the Jewishness of John's Gospel. My next guest for this program is John Ronning, who is a former lecturer in Hebrew and Old Testament at John Wycliffe Theological College in South Africa. He's currently an adjunct professor at Faith Theological Seminary in Baltimore, Maryland, and the author of a fascinating book titled The Jewish Targums and John's Logos Theology. John Ronning, thanks for being my guest today on the White Horse Inn. It's my pleasure, Shane. So for the sake of uh, most of our listeners, I'm wondering if you can give us a basic definition of a Jewish Targum. What exactly is a Targum, and why do you think this is an important area of research for students of the New Testament? Well, Targum is uh, both an Aramaic and a Hebrew word. It just means translation. And uh, the practice of translating the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic for the Jews who Aramaic was their first language and whether they knew some Hebrew or not, you know, it it became the common language after their exile and the return from exile. And my particular interest was in the concept of the divine word that's in the Targums. That's how I got into it. Can you unpack that a little bit? What do you find in the Targums about the divine logos or the word that's similar to the Gospel of John? Yeah, sometime probably after the exile, the Jews stopped pronouncing the divine name. Uh, I think it says somewhere that uh, it was only pronounced by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, and uh, eventually it stopped being pronounced altogether. Kind of like in our English translations, when you have Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament, you know that the capital letters indicate that that's actually the name of God, Yahweh, which they no longer pronounced. But at some point, they also began substituting not just the Lord, but the word of the Lord. And why why did they do that? Well, there's, there's lots of uh, speculation about that. I finally came to the conclusion that the concerns seem to be with trying to balance the transcendence of God with how is God involved in the creation. The tendency is that when God is involved with his people or with the creation in some way, they would employ the concept of the divine word. And the Incarnation, of course, would be the ultimate interaction with his creation, and I think John has employed that concept, adapting it to Jesus. But if you actually go through the Targums, you have to begin looking at Old Testament passages that relate to what John is saying. 
and uh, you often find the employment of the divine word. Yeah, and I'd like to go through a number of those examples because we really find language that's similar to the way John opens up his gospel. So, for example, if you look at Genesis one twenty-seven, the ESV reads, So God created man in his own image. But when you look at the Aramaic Targum, it reads, Then the word of the Lord created mankind in his image. Yes, and that's why it's appropriate uh, in an English translation of that Aramaic to capitalize word, just like you have in John's Gospel. Another text that's really illuminating is uh, Genesis fifteen six, this famous passage where Abraham believes the Lord and he is credited as righteous. But the Targum reads, Abraham believed in the name of the word of the Lord, and it was reckoned to him for merit. Here again, you can find connections with John's gospel. There's uh, quite a, an emphasis on the name of God, the name of God that is given to the Son in the prayer of Jesus in John 17, for example. Yeah, or right there at the opening of the gospel, you know, in chapter 1, it's all who received him who believed in his name. And who's the he there? It's the word that was unpacked in the first few verses. He is the word who becomes flesh in verse 14. Right, because John even hasn't mentioned the name Jesus as up to that point. Right. So are you suggesting that the Aramaic-speaking Jews who wrote and spoke in this way about the Word believe the same things that Christians do, namely that the Word is the second person of the Trinity? No, I don't. Uh, You can certainly look at a number of passages where it could be interpreted that way, but in my opinion, John didn't just take over what was in the Targums. He, He adapted what was in the Targums. So do you think that John, in the way he crafts the opening of the Gospel, sort of makes use of this Aramaic way of thinking about God in ways that becomes a fuller Christian revelation about God's nature? Yes, I think he's taken the Targum concept and adapted it. The big change would be in verse 14, the Word became flesh, which is totally you know, opposite to the kind of thing they're trying to avoid, uh, God being in too close contact with his creation. Obviously, in the Incarnation, God couldn't get any more involved in his creation. Let's look at another text here. Uh, Numbers 14.11, we find uh, the Lord saying to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? And in one of the Targums we find, How long will they not believe in the name of my word, according to all my miraculous signs that I've done among them? And uh, one of the things you point out is how similar that is to the language we find throughout John, Uh, You know, you have in the beginning is the word, but he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And then in John 12, it's though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Yeah, that sort of grabs you, doesn't it? Yeah. It's it's passages like that that really kind of clinch it for me that John is not really concerned so much with the Greek philosophy, but he's he's talking about the, the scriptures that he listened to when he was growing up in the synagogue. Yeah. So, in other words, do you think that John is actually writing primarily to fellow Jews who have this background in Aramaic-speaking synagogues? Well, what I would say, because, uh, you know, I I do believe John is is writing and concerned with the whole church, not just writing to Jews, but I, I, I think he's writing to the whole church, but he's writing in such a way that for the church to receive his message, they're going to need help from the the Aramaic-speaking Jews. Interesting. I'd like to talk about some of the ways these Targums unpack the language we find in Exodus. So in Exodus 3, you know, you have that scene where Moses approaches the burning bush. He comes to the mountain of Horeb, and he sees an angel of the Lord appear to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looks 
and the bush is burning but was not consumed. So God calls to Moses out of the bush, and Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. But the Targum there says, when Moses had turned aside to see, the word of the Lord called to him from the midst of the bush. So again, it's capital W word. Right. I think it is a very important passage, obviously, not just because it's uh, the book of Exodus and the burning bush and the start of the Exodus, you might say, but because of what the Lord goes on to say, he says, I have come down to deliver them in verse 8. Now, the idea of God coming down is one of those things that maybe people in the synagogue had trouble understanding, or maybe they said things like, uh, doesn't this sound like the Greek gods who come down, you know, they're limited, they're in a certain place at a certain time. And so the Targums would not translate it, I have come down. Uh, they translate it with the, the verbs of revelation. And so Jesus says in John chapter 6, I have come down from heaven, speaking of the incarnation. But what language does John use to describe that? He says the word became flesh. He uses the concept of the word. Uh, similarly, in 1 John chapter 3, the Son of God was revealed. He doesn't say the Son of God came down. So it seems like John has a tendency to use Targum language, and you may not recognize that it's the same thing Jesus is talking about, because Jesus tends to use more of the literal language from the Old Testament. In Exodus 6, God says, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And uh, one of the Targums has this as, I will separate you to my name for a holy people, and my word will be a redeeming God for you. What do you think is behind that line, my word will be a redeeming God for you? I'm not sure, but you do find it in several places. And uh, it obviously is very fitting for John to use a concept like that and apply it to Jesus. Yeah. In Deuteronomy 32:39, we read, uh, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no other God besides me. That, in one of the Targums, is translated this way. See now that I, in my word, am he, and that there is no other God except me. Now, another Targum, a different translation of the same verse, says, When the word of the Lord will be revealed to deliver his people, he will say to the nations, See now that I am he, who is and who was, and I am he who will be, and there is no other God except me. I mean, there are so many parallels there to a, the beginning of John's gospel, but also the language we find in Revelation, you know, where John says to the seven churches, grace and peace to you from he who is and who was and who is to come. And uh, now the first one that you mentioned, see now that I in my word am he. Uh, that goes back to what I mentioned earlier about John using the Targum language, uh, but Jesus using the language of the Hebrew. Throughout the gospel, Jesus says, I am he. And uh, in many of those cases, it's a reverberation of the Old Testament divine, I am he. So you have kind of a joining of the two concepts together, the word concept and the I am he concept in that passage of Deuteronomy 32, 39. And then the second one you mentioned is, you know, it has quite a preface there. It's uh, when the word of the Lord shall be revealed to redeem his people, he will say to all the nations. That obviously is not translating anything in the Hebrew. So there's some interpretation going on there. And... Uh, if you ask the question, what are they referring to when they say, when the word of the Lord shall be revealed to redeem his people? Obviously, they're looking towards uh, you know, some eschatology there. So I point to a passage in Isaiah where uh, the Lord promises to come down again, and it's using pretty much the Exodus-type language, except, again, the Jews in the Targums did not 
use that concept of God coming down, literally. So if we were going to try to translate that back into Hebrew-type language, when the word of the Lord shall be revealed to redeem his people, basically means uh, when the Lord comes down from heaven again to save us in a new exodus. And the revelation of God's name was part of the first exodus. We see that at the burning bush, Exodus 3.14. You have a grammatical explanation of the divine name there, but you have it again, an explanation of the divine name or an exposition of the divine name in Exodus 34. And again, he comes down on Mount Sinai and passes before Moses proclaiming the divine name. I'd like to read that passage. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And the Aramaic version of that is... uh, Moses calls on the name of the word of the Lord, who is merciful and gracious, abundantly doing kindness and truth. So when you hear it translated that way, that really connects with John 1, 14 through 15. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right. So I think, I think John is saying, we disciples that were with Jesus for three years, it was like Moses being on Mount Sinai for three years, <laughs> the Lord passing before him, manifesting himself as full of grace and truth. I'm very persuaded that full of grace and truth in John 1.14 is the same as abounding in kindness and truth in Exodus 34.6. Uh, another text that uh, is really provocative is uh, Genesis 17.1, when the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. One of the targums of that passage says, uh, When the word of the Lord was revealed to Abram, he said to him, I am he, the God of the heavens, worship before me in truth. You know, there's a few Johannine themes there. You know, you have the word of the Lord who is revealed, but also it's worship in truth. So you have uh, John 1 and John 4, you know, worshiping in spirit and truth. But who is it we're worshiping? We're worshiping the word. Right, and you also have... uh... John eight fifty eight before Abraham existed, I am he. Right. In other words, I am the God of Abraham. Yeah. So you can see they got the message. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. My, my question is, do Christians actually get the message? Because in my own Christian life and experience and education, Christians tend to see Jesus maybe making a few cameo appearances in the Old Testament. But basically after the world was created through him, uh, he went to the dugout or something while the Father did everything. I think John is trying to tell us, no, that's the Son of God at work in the Old Testament. That's more or less the default interpretation that we should have. Well, before we uh, wrap this up, I want to go through just a few more of these Aramaic expansions. So uh, verse 32 and 33 of Deuteronomy 1, You did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents. And in the Aramaic paraphrase, You did not believe in the name of the word of the Lord your God, who leads before you in the way to establish for you a place for your dwelling. I mean, think about the parallels there to John 14, where he says, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? This is something I just haven't seen before. The language is strikingly similar to what we find there in Deuteronomy. And in fact, I would I would prefer to translate that Targum passage instead of the word establish. You could translate that to prepare for you a place for your dwelling. Yeah. And also, uh, if you go back to another passage that talks about the Lord going before them when they initially left Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 10, 
the word of the Lord going before them. And Moses says, rise up, O word of the Lord, that your enemies be scattered. We get an idea of what it means to prepare a place for us. He's not talking about carpentry work up in heaven. He's talking about going against his enemies. He's talking on the way to the promised land in the book of Numbers. But in John, he's talking about going to the cross. Yeah. Isaiah 55, the Hebrew version reads, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. The Aramaic Targum, Incline your ear and receive my word. Hear that your being might be established, and I will make an eternal covenant with you. Wow, just think about how that relates to uh, what Jesus says in John five thirty nine and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. So incline your ear and come to me, and the Targum is saying it's my word that you need to receive. Yes, and, and John uses that language again, John one twelve. <clears throat> he talks about those who received him those who did not receive him. He also talks about, uh, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But uh, again, the English translation tends to obscure. If you follow the word order of the Greek, Jesus is saying, it was about me that he wrote. And not just one or two prophecies, but, uh, you know, we talked earlier, full of grace and truth. Moses described me before my incarnation as full of grace and truth. It was about me that he was writing. Well... You have been hearing from John Ronning, an adjunct professor at Faith Theological Seminary in Baltimore, Maryland, and the author of The Jewish Targums and John's Logos Theology. John Ronning, thanks for taking time to be with us today on the White Horse Inn. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. For more information about our 2019 series through the Gospel of John, simply head to whitehorseinn.org slash john. And there you can submit questions for us to answer on the program, sign up to receive our e-newsletter, or make a one-time donation to help support our efforts. Once again, the web address is whitehorseinn.org forward slash john.